0: Welcome to "What If, So What?" the podcast where we ask what's possible with digital, to figure out how to make it real in your business. I'm Jim Hertzfeld.
1: and I'm Kim Williams Chopek.
0: We're part of Proficient's digital strategy team, and we normally spend this time asking "What if, so what," and most importantly, "Now what." But in this episode, I'm excited to share the conversation I had with Arvin Morali on the Intelligent Data podcast. Arvin Morali leads the data solutions practice at Proficient and is the chief strategist for data governance. And we wanted to explore the intersection between data, namely the proliferation of data and access to it, and how that is changing the customer experience, which, by the way, is also proliferating in many other ways. For years, the gap between an amazing customer experience and a really gnarly computer science problem has become narrower and narrower. This is a challenge for companies to solve, but it's also a great opportunity for companies to take advantage of so they can get closer to their customers and grow their own business. None of this happens without data. And that's why I'm excited to share this conversation. So let's get started.
1: Hey, listeners. I'm the host of Proficient's Intelligent Data Podcast. My role is a chief data strategist and practice lead of our data intelligence strategy team. Our goal is to help clients articulate the value of data and its strategic imperative of supporting organizational goals. We help our clients with a cultural shift of quote-unquote data-driven decision-making. In our first season of the Intelligent Data Podcast, I had some awesome guests who offered some fantastic perspectives about the value of data. Today, we have Jim Hertzfeld, and this is a fireside chat with him of a crossover between experience and intelligence. Jim, you want to introduce yourself?
0: Yeah, thanks, Arvin. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. I'm really excited to talk to you in this format. I know uh, we do a lot with clients and cover a lot of ground, and I'm really glad we could kind of step back. and And have this focus. I'm also the uh co-host of another proficient podcast, an upcoming podcast called What If So What. And that's a podcast where we're exploring some of the hype and and excitement around big digital experience topics and then how companies are making them practical and making them real in their everyday business. I'm also the proficient's chief strategist for digital, and I lead our digital strategy and innovation team uh, where we focus on a lot of upfront research from a customer market perspective and build experience ideation and investment planning to build and improve our clients' digital business. I'll just add on to that so that they can take advantage of the data and intelligence that you guys deliver, which is is happening more and more every day. So such a timely topic. And again, glad we could be here.
1: Awesome. Well, uh, let's get started. So Jim, this is a crossover episode after all. Let me start by asking you a fun question. What is your favorite crossover?
0: I think you think you know it's a TV crossover, right? If we're, if we're really kind of getting into it, I think um, there's so, there's so many sort of sitcom crossovers and and spinoffs too. I would tell you the one kind of really surreal moment that 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 I like is is in The Office. There were two versions of The Office. There's the, U- the original UK version, then there's the US version, which is you know having a huge resurgence right now. But there was actually an episode. Where the Ricky Gervais character David Brent actually showed up, I think he interviewed with Michael Scott played by Steve Carell in, in the U.S. office. Really, it's like, just a surreal moment. But the greatest crossover that I think that never happened was uh, more of a fan theory where Brian Cranston, his character Hal, and Malcolm in the Middle is, is the same character as Walter White in Breaking Bad. So it never happened, but it would have been a great crossover.
1: Wow. Man, I, I should definitely YouTube the Office crossover right there.
0: Yeah, it's it's um, it's pretty surreal, pretty funny.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm more of a DC Marvel kind of guy, so <laughs> you know my crossover <laughs> would be the, the episodes. I think it's a, it's a, every year they they come up with this set of episodes which does Supergirl, Flash, Batgirl, Arrow, and so many others. It's fun. I mean, you, you watch TV for fun, so I like these kind of yeah comic characters, you know, superhero.
0: Great universe, very interconnected so uh that's that's that's, that's awesome
1: well all right let's uh let's go to our show here um so let's start by asking a simple question right when you start thinking about moving data from a operational support to more of a customer experience concern, how does c x think about that and and how does it matter to the business?
0: It's a great question. I think it's that is a shift for businesses that seems to be accelerating, particularly over the last five to ten years. I think if you go way back in sort of traditional IT and business circles, we were just automating processes and, and there's obviously data involved, but that was really the value is you know, how do we build and run a better business. how do I improve my supply chain? How do I have a better handle on uh, order to cash? How do I understand my, my sales history the best way? And I think as more businesses internally became increasingly reliant upon ERP packages, for example, and again, just running a better business, I think that was kind of a natural outcome. I would tell you that Forrester called 2010 the year the dawn of the customer experience age and I think through broader sort of digital experience capabilities you know we're able to instrument and kind of wire up that customer experience which gives us more data so and the benefit to the customer is the transformation that's given way so having customers the reason they're in control is because they have the more they have more transparency into brands and businesses they can price check they can get The best deal. There's there's this tremendous amount of self-service, and then the switching costs are lower. So as they interact with more digital channels, they're just more informed, and the answer is they're in charge. And I think that's when you know a whole new domain of data around customer came to light. And so it's an advantage, right? But it's they have no choice but to extend their expertise from their internal digital operations or business operations to really having to understand and use data to understand what their customers are really thinking and doing because that customer's in charge and because they can. Again, we've instrumented it and we have a whole new batch of data that we never had before. I think that's really the evolution. That's why it matters.
1: And as we're recording this podcast episode, the 2020 presidential elections are going on. One thing that I'm always curious about, if you've noticed any television channels, they have this humongous TV screen, which shows you all the different compartments and how the electoral votes are constantly changing real time. Behind the scenes, that's data doing all this work for you. And then some of the TV channels actually predict who's going to win in this particular region, if you will. And what's interesting in those shows is that how the host actually uses touchscreen and he or she is able to drill down and drill back up and tell us that story. That itself shows you how these two work with each other and both the value of data, but at the same time, you need a UX to use it effectively. That's where I see increasingly data changing from just a business support mechanism to more of a game changer.
0: Well, I think, uh, yeah, and the data visualization matters. And I know because of the volume of data, I mean, there's this concept called drip, data rich, information poor, because we're overloaded with information. And of course, in an the election, there's obviously a lot at stake and there's a lot of details and a lot of moving parts. So I think that, yeah, that is why those drip concerns require better visualization. And better insight into you know, how customers or viewers, in this case, are able to process that information and do it in a sort of fluid way that ties back to the story that the reporter or the presenter or the brand is trying to sell.
1: Right. Right. Well, that's that's. I like the drip analogy here.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Let's start with the the why, what, hows of UX design. Could you help me understand, um, you know, in your perspective, what are those?
0: Well, I love the framing that you choose there, Arvin. like, you know, why, what, and how is, is important to me. That kind of goes back to Simon Sinek's golden circle. I think it's such a powerful structure for, for a lot of things. And when we think about experience design, we think about customer experience design in an omnichannel world, which is the world we all live in, right? It's 3D. It's not 2D. We actually start with why, and our motivation is to understand and build empathy. We do that with what we call three voices. There's the voice of the customer, the voice of the market, and the voice of the business. This is just setting context, motivation, and grounding things that we're focusing on the right outcomes, right? Which is the big why question. So voice of the customer, we deduce that into empathy through what we're called customer journeys, um, identifying the problems and the tasks that they have to solve, the conditions in which they have to solve those problems. So to get back to your election coverage, people want to know: I cast my vote. What was the outcome? What was the result of that? What's going to happen over the next four years? You know, we want to answer those questions. Those are problems, and there's emotion involved as well, and and there's urgency. It's supposed to be one day. And then we look at the voice of the market. So the voice of the market is: What does the competitive intelligence say? So consumers and customers have expectations that they're bringing to a brand based on not just their competitors, but what are the what we call comparables. And and those are really setting expectations. So if you had a great experience somewhere, if it was maybe making a reservation on Open Table, and now I'm trying to find a doctor, actually that reservation and that find a doctor actually shares some similarities in terms of the experience and that drives expectations. So that the voice of the market in competitive intelligence is really about leveling expectations. And then finally what we call the voice of the business. What is the business trying to get out of this? If they could satisfy everything the customer needs, what do we do about it? And that gets to the second question, which is what? What are the experiences, the flows, the stories that I want to deliver? And then what are the capabilities, processes, and technology that I have to create inside my business to drive it? I love to use the example of a drive through window. drive through window is a great experience. We've all done it. Fourth meal, Taco Bell, it's late at night, and I just need a taco. So that is an orchestration of so many things, data, supply chain, experience the menu the visualization of the menu let's think about that you know is there curbside but all that orchestration has to come together to make that what a very simple satisfying experience and then how do you do that what sort of agility do you bring in what's the technology what's the plan you know and then an underscore topic that comes up a lot which is change management how do I go from a to B so all those things for us really go in that's sort of the the sausage making of a user experience. It feels very elegant and simple upfront, took a lot of heavy lifting to make it happen. And we got to do that in a very thoughtful way.
1: I, I love it. So basically the voice of the customer, voice of the market and voice of the business. You know, it's interesting you bring those topics up. So in the data world, when, when we do data strategy, we break down the information value and the information sets to two ways, right? It's the organization's data, and it's the customer's data. Organization's data is all the information that you as an organization, the HR information about your payroll, about your vendors and suppliers. And then there's the customer information as in how does the customer interact with you? Every interaction point, starting from them discovering you through Google or some website, all the way to them becoming a customer for you and you becoming a loyal customer, if you will, these are all individual data points that you need to track. This aligns really well with your three themes that you just pointed out. The voice of the customer, the market, and the business. That's absolutely fantastic.
0: The three tenors. The three tenors. We're just gonna call it right now. The three tenors, the, 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 the customer, the market, and the business.
1: Like all these buzzwords, <laughs> man. This is fantastic. We should be using this more often. That's
0: all these pop culture references, right. Arvin. I just can't I can't get away from
1: it. <laughs> I wish I know a little bit more about that, but hey. <laughs> Another topic. Okay. So I wanted to drill down on something you said earlier, analytic storytelling. Look, it's coming more and more uh in, in my discussions with the clients. What does that mean to you, Jim?
0: I'm glad you're asking. I I, I love that idea. And storytelling means a lot. And the reason and the reason it's relevant is because we know just through human psychology, again, whether you're kind of driving your own business or in your own organization or you're driving um, a customer interaction, stories matter because stories are the things we can relate to. Again, psychologically, from a sort of information processing standpoint, we can get behind stories. And that's why superheroes' stories are so relevant and so critical because there are a lot of themes around the story. And one of them is the hero's journey. So Spider-Man's a classic hero's journey Average Joe or Peter, right? He has some challenges, he has a quest, he has a gift. His gift is great power and great responsibility. And that's that's ultimately his challenge, right? And so then he's faced with all these obstacles and villains and then, you know, how does he kind of rise above and grow and evolve and become Spider-Man? And that's the classic hero's journey. Star Wars, same thing. All the great Westerns follow a very similar story arc and that works. Because people can relate to it, they can humanize it and then they can understand it. And that's why, you know, we use the election as an example. There's a lot at play and it's complex. So how does visualization become part of the story narrative? I wanna share one really great tip for everyone that I think gets people into the storytelling mode, you know, without going to film school. And I think what most people think of is what's called the and then arc where we just say, well, this happened, then this happened, and then this happened. So if you're telling a story with data, in the old world, you might say, well, customers were confused by our products, and then we gave them a better product page, and then we had to give them better product data to make that page come to life. And that's that's might be an accurate story. That might be an accurate accounting of what happened, but a better version might be using a couple of other keywords, therefore and but. And so I might tell that story a different way. Customers wanted to know more about our products, but we weren't giving them enough product detail in the right way. Therefore, we quantified their journey to understand it and give them the product data that would help them solve their problems. And that's a different way of telling the story.
1: Can I add one more little line item to that?
0: Please. Yes.
1: And due to that, we got 14% increase in conversion rates and 20% of fewer customer calls. How about that?
0: That's outstanding. Now we're getting into an even deeper why and the outcomes we're looking for and obviously making the business case. So that's awesome, Marvin. I think when you tie those things together, again, visualization is certainly a creative art form to that and there's a psychological aspect to that, but I think storytelling is what helps make it
1: stick for a lot of brands i mean i'm a data-driven guy so i was doing some research on the storytelling it it was outstanding to know that there was a 2019 study conducted by mit and basically they said 70 percent of their participants who are specifically college grads their adoption of using um, you know a book over a website or some digital information And then, by the way, even within that digital information, making it more chart savvy and have some throw some likes in there to say you like this topic and so on, that kind of gamification increased the adoption by 70%, as in participants were much more involved in the content and interacting with it and using it as they were talking to their professors. So it was a staggering statistic to know that these analytic storytelling does have more engagement, if you will. So what is the impact of the example that you just gave us? A website design, more product information, leading to more adoption. Can you talk to me a little bit about the aesthetics of UX as it relates to branding or design or usability functions?
0: Well, I think um, let's focus on maybe on branding because I think it's an interesting starting point to connect the brand and the experience. I think when you mentioned aesthetics, I think it's what most people think of when they think of a brand. I mean, it's the most tangible first thing you sense from brand is what does it look like? What can it feel like? And that could just be the way you walk into a restaurant and you see the sign and you take in the tone and the decor and you look at the menu. You know, I think a lot of things, a lot of those things make up brand. To tie that back to sort of storytelling and design, I mean, I mentioned storytelling has, has always been powerful. And where I think that crosses over from design is, you know, we can make that more immersive through media. We have a lot more options, right? So we have more than a signage and a menu. And because people do start with digital, that is where most brand interactions uh, and relationships are, are going to begin from a website or an Instagram feed or an ad, a digital ad more more and more. We have to think about the overall journey. And the reason is that is because as brands become more digital first, then the experience that customers have with those digital channels, actually becomes the brand, and in fact, we've been saying that for a long time from design circles is again the brand for for years. Go back to Watch Mad Men, right? If you're familiar with that, familiar with that series, very traditional. You know, the company sort of and the brand sort of controlled the message, but now the experience is the brand. It costs a lot of money to acquire customers, and you can lose them and with one bad experience. So we have to think about journeys and interactions as recently as the experience because each interaction is part of that story and so by the time a customer gets to let's say i mentioned finding a doctor like that that story is already underway they might be halfway through that journey before they have any interaction and so you know that that story finding a doctor i mean that could be a very tragic story it could be a very joyful story but that's how they're going to connect with the brand Again, we start with, with understanding all those elements and really kind of stepping back and acknowledging that that experience is the brand. And that experience, let's go back to find a doctor. It's going to be data-driven, right? Who are the doctors? Are they in the coverage? What's it going to cost me? When can I talk to that doctor? When, how quickly can I make an appointment? Uh, all those things are going to contribute to what we previously called the brand. And I think, again, that's core to the UX of, and the aesthetics of that UX
1: let's take that example right the the doctor example you provided in your experience and what you've seen with our clients what is the most valuable content that you can think about again from an aesthetics perspective um is it a piece of audio talking about what have they accomplished and how great they are, the brand itself. Is it a video, for example, to find a doctor? That's a video about a doctor explaining how they think about coordination of care or a patient explaining how great the hospital is for me to go and check my health, if you will. Are the charts, we've delivered 14 pregnancies successfully in one day on an average. I'm just making this up. This is not real. Things like that. Is it that, or is it the infographic that somehow combines all of these into a beautiful visual representation and shows it in the website? Or is it all of these? Depends on the on what you're trying to say.
0: I'm going to give you a big, it depends uh, answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the reason I say that is because there's so much competition in the digital space for those moments. So a lot of marketers, designers talk about moments that matter. In fact, I'm working with an insurance company right now and as they think about their journey map, you know, they think about shopping for coverage, right? They're shopping for a plan, an individual or a family benefit plan. Again, back to my earlier point, they're in charge. They they have a lot of choices. But you know, so sure, you have to give them as much information as possible. You want to give them that information in a way that is consumable and understandable because there's a lot to consider. Coverage, potential cost. Can I keep my doctor? Right. You want to be able to understand those tasks right up up front. And again, that's the why. But I think where the arena, the competition is taking place is how do we make that as personalized as possible? How do we understand not just anybody buying these insurance products, but let's get a little more fidelity in who they are. And we talk about, we introduced this idea you may have heard of called personas. I'll throw a couple out there. There is, uh, in this case, particular case, there's Healthy Henry, Preventative Peggy, And there's six Sue. Now, I'm not making a joke. It's all about getting consensus about who they are. But, you know, they have different needs at different moments, you know, and they have different moments that matter. And the reason we want to know those is because it's not a one-size-fits-all world. And it doesn't have to be a one-to-one. But again, we have the data. We have the intelligence to be able to respond and react to those different personas, those different needs. And I think, you know, that's all part of the larger data and design integration.
1: No I, I agree and, and what is uh, what comes to my mind when you were speaking this example of a a prospect looking for say a health plan or health insurance right so many data aspects to keep in mind the number one would obviously be you know data security protecting personal information and making sure that you know it doesn't get to the wrong hands but there's also the aspects of data transparency and data quality i mean if you think about it um you mentioned that if i'm shopping for an insurance I need some transparency of costs. Like how much are you going to cost me if I go to a silver plan or a gold plan? These are machine learning algorithms that runs in the back end and generates a, a outcome, right? A value that is displayed in the screen. But you want to make sure that you're providing enough transparency to your consumers, to your prospects. But at the same time, you're providing the right kind of data, the right information so they don't get derailed. So that, that also comes in my mind. Do you see a lot of these discussions happening with the representation, like a chief data officer being in the room when you're having these discussions?
0: Yeah, especially well, especially in the healthcare field because you mentioned you know there's PII data and and transparency, but this is more and more an issue of not just compliance, but kind of dialing in the right business case. And there's there's one word that when we think about personalization, that you almost touched on, which is relevance. And so there's a lot said around people exchanging privacy. For convenience, right? Of course, in the, in the healthcare setting, that's a little more acute. But we do have to focus on what's relevant because there is a cost associated with that. There's an o- operational cost with ensuring that the content and the data that's relevant to those personas is going to pay off. And so, I don't want to throw a wet blanket on personalization, <laughs> but by any means, but I think what we find is there's an operational component to ensuring that relevance continues. You know, there's a lot of horror stories about in more innocuous sort of retail scenarios where I'm sending you a birthday card, but your birthday was six months ago. Like nobody wants that. <laughs> nobody wants, right? There's a the downside cost to that. So a lot of possibilities, you know, that are probably limited by both compliance constraints, but limitations, but also there's an ROI, even in, even in personalization.
1: We had Juliet Silver on the show a little while ago, and uh, you know there are three things she mentioned from a healthcare perspective, what is important. I was uh, going back to my notes. Resilience, scale, and relevance. So yes, hit the nail in the head. <laughs> That's awesome. Hey, we talked about the, the UX strategy. We talked about the branding. Let's talk about the people, the people who make this happen. In my research, I've seen three types of designers. You have the data-driven designer who's very quantitative, very rigid, very analytical. Again, there's no right or wrong answer on any of these types. I'm going to use the word persona, if you will, which you've outlined before. Then there's the data-informed. Now, this is a, a person who's flexible. They prioritize their qualitative characters, like the instinct and their experience but they use, they get informed with all the quantitative aspects such as data. And then the last one is kind of the data aware where they know how to balance right between a data driven and a data informed. Do you see people thinking about it this way? Do you see a lot of the designers focused on one or the other? What are your thoughts on this?
0: I would tell you there's there's definitely a debate. And again, there's a balancing point. There's a key tenant in customer research that's persisted for years there's there's what people tell you, and then there's what they do so you can interview people all day long about what their preferences are and their pri- and you can survey them and you can look at their priorities but invariably that's that's going to be different than their their behaviors just a fact of life we mentioned bra I mentioned breaking bad earlier there's you know there's actually a, a name for that called the Heisenberg effect that you know systems will operate as they do and then but when you start to look at them, you start to measure them, you start to inquire about them, the inquiry actually changes the behavior. It's like putting, if you put the principal in the back of the classroom, the teacher's going to behave a little bit differently. The lesson that day is going to be a little bit different. And so you're always going to have that effect. And again, that that's actually the beauty of data. In fact, journey mapping is kind of giving way to what's called journey sciences. You know, And this is where analytics, which are incredibly sophisticated today, everybody wants to know and collect the right data. But there's also this this issue of what we call signal to noise ratio. So we, we want to know everything just in case, but I guess the way we go about it is trying to find a balancing point. You start with a hypothesis. You might use journey sciences to say, you know what, most of the people are going down this path and they're buying these things and we're giving attribution to this content. So that seems like something we should look at. And then you swing the pendulum to a more qualitative treatment. You start to look at competitive analysis. Approximate what people expect. But most important thing is you iteratively test those hypotheses. That's the center of a great design process. A little bit of qualitative, a little bit of quantitative, make sure you quickly iterate and test. That's kind of at the center of design thinking. And it's also how you bring data scientists and designers together in the same room. And Arvind, I know our teams are working on a couple of really cool uh, sort of AI driven experiences where you know, that are very cognitive driven. And the idea of kind of getting into some of that, the psychology of those interactions is, is new territory. It's a great question. It's something we have to really keep an eye out over the next couple of years.
1: I, I love the way you used psychology of interactions. Interaction is a data, psychology is the experience. You know, when when you think of these two working together, that gives you a more holistic perspective instead of just doing one or the other. I'm assuming you're more of a data aware designer where you're 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 you have a healthy mix of both data and experience, qualitative and quantitative as you stated, in, in your design techniques. That's awesome.
0: Yeah, that's the finding that balance is what's gonna work. You know, and there's a level of proof too, right? Because you're gonna say, you've got to prove it. And so even when you go through an iterative design process, be ready to measure the outcomes because you're gonna do your best to get it right. But but also customers change their mind. They evolve. Uh, The market evolves. So you got to be ready for change.
1: The only change that is consistent is the change itself, as they say.
0: Right. Uh, Exactly. And death and taxes. But that's... uh... (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Love it. (laughs) Hey, Arvind, this uh, this has been a lot of fun. I want to turn the tables on you a little bit because uh, you've been asking me a lot of questions. And um, I wanted to kind of turn around a little bit and ask you some questions because... And it was a great kind of jump off point because we were talking about Who's in the design room, right? Who's in the studio, the design studio or the lab? The marketers, the designers, the data guys, the scientists. And the answer is everybody. So let me get some of this perspective from you. We've established, you know, you and I are in total agreement that data and, and analytics is becoming increasingly more important in the UX ecosystem, in the way brands have evolved. But with products like you know the Adobe suite and Adobe Analytics becoming more and more sophisticated, more and more integrated into other systems, you know, and ultimately driving not just the digital experience, but the digital marketing and operational decisions. How is that changing the the way you approach data strategy? And what are those implications?
1: That is a fantastic question. So let's, let's, take a step back and see how data strategy itself has evolved with the whole digital transformation, right? So conventional data strategy about not even five years ago was all about these massive cloud data platforms. Cloud was up and coming. It's it's not as mature as it is today. It was about ingesting data into those cloud data platforms, clean it, validate it, and start using it for whatever purpose. It was still very analytics focused. Sure, there's real-time data coming in, you can use more data, but that doesn't still support the digital transformation, the fundamental change in the business processes. Now, with the evolution of digital and data products, in fact, you touched up on one of those just a little while ago, it's all about the customer intelligence and intelligent automation kind of thinking right so modern data strategy these days the most important thing is about generating business value once i know how data and information are going to support my business value typically it'll be make money or save money in a nutshell In some cases, a lot of cases nowadays, they're thinking about environmental effects and some of the things that impacts our society positively. But those are unique data points that drives value, that drives an organizational brand representation. From there, you take it to what critical pieces of data you need to deliver that value. And then from there, you take it to data platforms. How do I now support this massive ecosystem of information, which requires master data, analytics, artificial intelligence, and machine learning? All of these things that goes into that end-to-end platform. Well, guess what? I've given you a massive platform with so much data in it. I need to govern it. I need to make sure that the people who are using it are using it the right way. And we go back to that business value that it is driving. So that's what modern data strategy is all about. It is never about the technology side. It's always about business value. So start with the business outcome itself, Jim.
0: You know that's that's so that's so cogent today. I remember sort of in the early e-business days, sort of in the late '90s, you you had all these startups that had in these conversions were moving so fast, right? And there was no business plan, right? And, and the bubble burst because of that. I will say to anybody who's listening, especially some of the bigger enterprise brands, right? There's no free lunch. There's no, you know, none of this happens just because we have to, because like, well, everybody's doing it. Like, I don't think any business is working that way. They're shrewd, they're frugal, and they're, it's got to matter. So I I would echo that as well. Same goes for design, right? We don't do design for design's sake. It's purposeful. You mentioned um, machine learning and, and AI. It's like, I don't know what solution or what client isn't thinking about AI and machine learning but how has that accelerated the adoption of what you've been calling intelligent automation and in this change like how does that specifically apply to what we've been talking about
1: yeah yeah and, and AI has been such a pervasive topic everywhere we talk about And AI is such a large field, right? It's after industrial evolution, now we're talking about intelligent evolution, where essentially businesses start using artificial intelligence to think like us, think like humans, right? Fundamentally, the promise of AI was automation. This was years ago. Over time, AI evolved into this intelligent automation. It still automates a lot of mundane tasks that humans are doing it's becoming smarter and smarter. And that means it's getting fed with more and more data. So you think about a simple example, like the conversational bots, right? Scripted bots were developed a long time ago. Amazon had that 10 years ago, I believe. Now, scripted bots are getting more and more personalized using data by training it more and more and more so that Jim will get a specific response for the question he's asking and Arvin will get a different response. Yes, it is still a decision tree, but the decision tree itself is driven by data. Just one example of how this automation has evolved into intelligent automation. In fact, there are so many companies that are creating a verb, right? For example, you talk about recommender engine. Netflix started this whole concept. Netflix and Amazon were the guys who... For lack of a better word, invented and starting using recommender engines. Nowadays it's personalization's fundamental priority is to build that recommender engine so everybody will have individual recommendations. Then we talk about pricing. A little while ago, you touched up on how transparent should UX designers think about when it comes to showing a competitive price, a plans price. You take some of the larger insurance companies, right, health insurance companies. You go to their website, the first thing you would see is, we compare insurance company A, B, and C, and they're that transparent because they're confident and they're data-driven to say that they are the best in the market and they offer competitive pricing. Amazon does a lot of this. If you Google any product, it'll show up a list of e-commerce websites that offers that product. Amazon will be on the top of that. It'll say it's the most cost-effective, and sometimes it's not, but those are all data-driven. If you think about these, these are all AI-driven, intelligent automation techniques that's picking up with all of our clients. And again, the fundamentals is you give good data, your AI is going to perform well. Garbage and garbage everywhere.
0: You bring up Amazon. Amazon's such a case study on so many different things but this is going to sound really meta but you know what amazon does if you jump on amazon you know they, they will give pricing down to the i call sort of the random penny and sometimes you know they'll they're very good about telling you when you this price has gone up or down and sometimes that might be seven cents and you're thinking to yourself does seven cents really matter you know i mean does it <laughs> it's uh, but but the the effect of that is not Hey, I'm going to save you seven cents. The effect of that is the message that they're delivering to the shopper is, I am so concerned about giving you the right price that I am giving you it down to the penny, and I'm letting you know when when it's gone up and down, and you can trust. You know, there's a lot of trust and transparency. We haven't. It is implied here, but I've done the work for you. That's a level of trust and convenience that is really behind that, right? They're not trying to say say "I'm I'm going to save you seven cents. It's I've done the work for you. I'm I'm a partner in your shopping journey. And I, I think that is extremely powerful. And you're right, that's an AI acceleration. And I think there are hundreds of adjacent use cases like that where AI and data and transparency will come together to digitally build trust in those brands. And that is, to me, that is one of the coolest things happening out there. In
1: it. Now the evolution about intelligent automation, Jim, is this edge computing, right? So If you think about a very complicated machine learning algorithm, like think oil sensors, right? You've you've got these humongous oil wells that are in the middle of nowhere, and you've got thousands and millions of sensors that are sitting there. What if I offer an engineer who's working on this rig, a laptop or or a, a small device, a mobile device, if you will, and show you exactly among the million sensors which one of these sensors are going to go out? This is real. This is, this is not some science fiction, right? So the challenge then becomes, I've got so many features in my AI component that will tell me exactly where what went wrong. However, for me to calculate that in the edge, I need a very powerful computing ability. This is where it's moving. So it's moving from the traditional websites and apps into edge computing, as they call it that is the future of intelligent automation again we're we're still work in progress gpus are now becoming cheaper uh companies like nvidia are launching the next gen gpu we're not there yet but this is the evolution of the robotic age from where we are today
0: let's 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 tie 5g into that and make this a 4 hour podcast episode <laughs> <laughs> yeah but, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. We are literally on the edge, but, you know, historically, data, data products and data capabilities are, were plumbing forever. I remember very early days of web design, like, hey, I just got to put this field on this HTML page. Where do I get it? You know, so there's a, there's a lot of plumbing and it's a lot of heavy backend work. It's sort of dirty work. And maybe you know, not, as, not as sexy as, as the front end. So designers didn't pay much attention to it. They were completely dependent on that data, but didn't pay as much attention to it, I think, early on much less even sort of the business problem that we're trying to solve. I, I think we've come a long way. I mean, you know, I'm wondering, are you noticing that as well? Do you see that changing the way you work with UX designers, changing the way they work with data guys, is that sort of hand-in-hand bringing product and UX mindset together from our pr- respective point of views? I see it. What do you see? And maybe that's maybe that's how we close this out. That's where we're going to hold hands and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and roll up our sleeves. So what you know? What are you seeing? What, what how do you see? How are you seeing that evolve?
1: Yeah, simple example, right? So we are in the middle of a pandemic. I give you two choices, Jim. There, there's no. They both are, one without the other. I'll give you an advance notice. Your choice A is I give you a fantastic website, a pretty looking website, with dirty data on it, not necessarily 100% accurate COVID statistics. All right, but I won't tell you what is the accuracy percent. And I give you option B, a Microsoft Excel file, which is extremely clunky and hard to use, but it's 100% accurate data. Which one do you pick?
0: I'm going to go with data. I mean, again, the context here, (laughs) survival and back to trust and transparency, right?
1: Right. But also keep in mind, I'm giving you a humongous Excel. It's hard to, you know, going back to the 18th century, right? When Excel was invented, it's still the largest database in the world, no doubt about that. But That's where this problem started, that you've got silos of data sitting everywhere and people just manipulating it for whatever they want to do. And now when you combine that user experience where you can use it seamlessly and you can use it for your different business purpose, context, content and presentation matters quite a bit. I don't think there is one way or the other in my mind. Again, COVID, you're right. It's, It's a different context. But I think they too have to work together seamlessly, and I see UX designers closely working with the analytics and the AI guys, and vice versa. The the guys have to understand what goes on in the front end, what does this persona look like, and what are their responsibilities? How would they use in two clicks their experience, if you will? I think they go hand in hand, and there's you know you can't break one without the other.
0: I think you're right. Maybe I'll bring it all the way back together because I would say yeah, the design is useless without the data. The data is ineffective without the design, and so maybe I'll tie it back to this. It's it's really a Batman and Robin proposition, isn't it?
1: That's right. I don't want to say which one is Batman and Robin, but okay. <laughs>
0: Wonder Twins. I don't know. You know the you know the DC and Marvel universe better than I do.
1: Uh, the Avengers.
0: I'll go with Jesse and Heisenberg. So
1: <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> No, that's uh, absolutely, Jim. And this has been a fantastic experience. I've, I've learned a lot in the podcast, quite honestly. And, and it gives me a perspective as to, as being that data guy in the room, what do I need to think about? What are some of the UX techniques that I need to keep in mind as we're talking about the value of data? So really, really appreciate your time here.
0: I do too. Thanks so much, Arvin.
1: You've been listening to What If So What? with Jim Hertzfeld and Kim williams Chopek Subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss a single episode. You can find this season along with show notes at proficient.com. We're also on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Google, and other major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.